Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we'll talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you're ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution towards solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlscott. I'm a principal at Fovia, an energy, carbon, and business planning firm. In this December 2017 interview, I'll talk with retired Marine Colonel Mark Mickleby, who goes by the nickname of Puck. He recently co-authored a book with Patrick Doherty and Joe McCower called The New Grand Strategy, Restoring America's Prosperity, Security, and Sustainability in the 21st Century. Our discussion covers a wide range of topics, including the history of grand strategy in the United States. He talks about how our current systems are based on a now obsolete grand strategy and goes on to outline a vision for how America can reinvent itself using sustainability as a core organizing concept. Much of the interview certainly veers off my normal focus of higher education and corporate campuses. However, I hope you'll find Puck's thoughts on strategy and sustainability at a national scale, a source of inspiration for how we can rethink our work at the campus scale. Well, Puck, it's great to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the first time we met was at the Second Nature Leadership Summit in Tempe, Arizona earlier this year. And at the time, I'd been vaguely aware of the work the military had been doing around renewable energy and energy efficiency. But at your session, it was the first time I'd ever heard anybody say the words military strategy and sustainability in the same sentence. I've read your book and um, excited to dig into that a little bit. It was fascinated to learn about the work you've done under Admiral Mike Mullen. So I'd like to dig into a few themes from the book but perhaps you can start us off just by giving us a little more background on how you found yourself in this assignment of coming up with a grand strategy for the United States. Well, um, sure. And uh, I guess the first thing that I just want to foot stomp is that the work that I did at the end of my military career wasn't a military strategy. It was not a military strategy. It was a grand strategy. It was a, stra- a comprehensive strategy uh, for the nation on how to converge domestic and foreign policy to pursue our, our enduring interests. I mean, so it's completely different. I, I just really want to underscore that. And how did it all come to be? Well, I was doing strategy for Special Operations Command from 2007 to 2009. But that was really pretty much a catalytic experience for me. It was really transformative because in 2007, we sat down, was tasked with, first of all, standing up the first strategy division that Special Operations Command had ever had. They never had a strategy division in its 20-year history at that point in uh, 2007, and it never had a comprehensive strategy for all the Special Operations Forces. And it was a sense of the commander of Special Operations Command at the time, Admiral Eric Olson, that that was something that was required given the nature of the, what that was called the global war on terrorism and Special Operations Forces, you know, key role in that type of fight. And the general sense at the time, was, you know, at least my read from Admiral Olson, was that needed to have a different type of approach. Uh, that we were doing a lot of killing, doing a lot of fighting, but we really were not shifting the needle in a positive way. And the only guidance he gave our strategy team, was a really small team, was figure out how to get out in front of the sound of the guns. And I just want to say that again. Figure out how to get out in front of the sound of the guns, i.e., how can special operations forces, how can they reshape the security environment so we can be smarter about how we fight in a large way by making sure that we don't have to fight. Uh, that doesn't mean that special operations is moving away from doing the hard work that special ops does, but special operations does a, a lot of different things, and not just fighting. And so we were just trying to f- figure out how to be smarter about it. So we really took a different approach, and we really started looking at different things like urban design and regenerative agriculture and female health and education issues, anything that we could engage in the security environment to, to have a systemic shift in how that environment unfolded. It was interesting stuff. It was really very much a systems approach, and I'm not going to get into all the geeky stuff on how we philosophically, conceptually, and functionally framed a strategy out, but it was pretty cool. Anyways, Admiral Mullen, who was the relatively new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff underneath the Bush administration in 2008, uh, and by the way, he continued as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under President Obama. But in 2008, I think October 2008, he heard what we gave him a brief about what we were doing in terms of strategy, special operations command, and he really liked it. And next thing I know, in July of 2009, I was pulled up to the Pentagon, which was supposed to be a two-month gig, ended up being a two-year 
fun in the puzzle palace there. But the basic tasking he gave me and this other guy that had long time been on his staff, a Navy captain named Wayne Porter, we were tasked with writing a new grand strategy for the nation. And if you could just get your brain around that, you know, how are we going to write a whole new strategy for the for the country? Just to get to the gist of that, uh, when I got there in July of 09, Admiral Mullen gave us the guide and said, hey, go figure it out, uh, boys. And so we went back to our little office and Wayne and I looked at each other and said, how the hell are we going to do this? And the first thing we decided was that we were not going to write a strategy because that's the last thing that America needed was another strategy tumbling out of Washington, D.C. that had no context. Had, you know, it was just a wish list about the things that we would like to see happen and not a really pragmatic, actionable strategy that makes hard resources and prioritization decisions. And so what we thought that America needed was more was a story about not all the things that we were against, all the threat and risk that we think we have to you know, keep away. We thought that America probably needed a story about opportunity and a strategy, a strategic mindset and a framework for opportunity. After all, we're the land of opportunity. We're not the freaking land of threat and risk. And so Wayne and I set forward to write this thing called the National Strategic Narrative. And in that narrative, we took the stock of the global trend lines, big, huge, uh, movements in the uh, in the global security environment, and we recognize that the world doesn't operate as a closed system as we would like it to be, where we can have a sense of control. Our last grand strategy was containment, you know, take on the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Well, it was a control strategy, leverage force and power in order to have some level uh, level of control. It worked because the, mostly because of the nature of, of information at the time. Uh, we were able to outlast the Soviet uh, Union in a political and economic contest. You know, we contained it militarily, but we just outlasted them. And it worked. The Soviet Union collapsed based on its own internal contradictions, just like George Kennan said it would in 1946. But the problem is we never, when the Soviet Union uh, folded up its flags, we never did a strategic reset. It didn't come to grips with the fact that the world is really operates more today in the 21st century as an open system, more along the lines of an ecology. And that was a big epiphany for Wayne and me that we said, hey, you know, in this strategic ecology, as we called it, in, in open system, maybe, just maybe, we have to take more of a kind of a Darwinian approach to things and not about survival of the fittest, but how are you the best contributor and the best competitor in a global ecology? And if we really wanted to pursue our enduring interests of prosperity and security, you know, what would be that coalescing concept that would converge our domestic and foreign policy to that end within this strategic ecology? And that was a big deal for us to have that, uh, I guess, that epiphany, because it really started making us think in more systemic terms rather than systematic terms and uh, not deterministic terms. And when we looked at that and trying to figure out what concept would apply, one scientific concept kept coming up. It was the idea of sustainability. You know, and the definition that we used was an organism's ability to remain diverse and productive over time. It directly ties directly relates to our enduring national interests of prosperity and security. I mean, diversity means depth. It means redundancy. It means resilience. I mean, that's national security 21st century style. It's not about wrapping every American's head in freaking bubble wrap, trying to protect them from all the bad stuff, keep all the bad stuff from our shores outward away. I mean, that's national defense. That's why God made the Marine Corps and all the other services to support Marines to go do the hard stuff that, that we do. But that's national defense. National security has more to do with the vibrancy and the resilience and the interactions and the complementarity of all our functioning systems of food, water, energy, built environment, transportation, education, industry, all these things coming together towards a positive, more enduring, more vibrant national system. And when it comes to prosperity, we really had to come to grips with the fact that we live in a resource-constrained environment and that we can't keep running down this path that everything's about GDP or about the Dow because there are a limited number of resources. I mean, the limits to growth actually does apply. It's a scientific treatise, you know. And so we really said that, you know, we probably need to start looking at prosperity more along the lines of what does it mean to be for growth and not quantitative growth but qualitative growth. And when we really looked at that, grand strategy in that context about our enduring national interest, the nature of the environment, a strategic ecology, and this concepts of sustainability, it really became powerful because then we could start saying, hey, this is where our domestic and foreign policy can converge towards a common design and a common goal, where our smart growth at home becomes our smart power abroad because if, as we walk the talk, we gain strength and credibility 
not by what we say, but what we do. And credibility is the important part. We're talking, you know, can we have uh, credible influence in the world? When I talk about influence, I'm talking about influence the noun, not influence the verb. It's by walking the talk. Great. So, you know, as I was reading the book, The New Grand Strategy, Restoring America's Prosperity, Security, and Sustainability in the 21st Century, um, which you co-authored, it was really striking to me on what you landed on. So you were talking earlier about, you know, certainly moving away from this sense of control and more of opportunity. And the three major opportunities you identify are walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity. Um, you know, it was surprising coming out, I guess you've clarified this was a grand strategy, not a military strategy, but given the fact that this was from a military perspective, those were surprising. So maybe you can unpack those a little bit for us. Why those three? What about walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity? What? How does that set the stage for America in the 21st century? Well, sure. Uh, and it comes down to an operating framework for U.S. grand strategy. I mean, we've got, uh, basically, when we've done grand strategy well, we've kind of had a quintessentially unique American design, a unique American way of doing grand strategy. And it's basically, you know, we stand on our economy. We allow our economy to do the heavy lifting. And then we align our governing institutions and our foreign policy to take on whatever big global challenges facing us. You know, we did that World War II. You know, we're the arsenal of democracy. You know, we built up the industrial capacity to arm and equip our allies, fight a two-front global war against global fascism. You know, Cold War, basically the same design. We, you know, set up a contest of political and economic systems, you know, take on the Soviet Union. Like I said before, yeah, we contained them militarily, but the real power behind it was our economy, and Eisenhower knew that better than anybody. So it's about the economic foundation. And so in the book, you know, we really hammer home the economics of grand strategy because that is the, the first foundation. But it also has to include how we do our foreign policy, how do we, uh, and then how do we organize ourselves in terms of our governing institutions to be able to implement this grand strategy over time. But the economic side of it is the, the critical part, and that is what is so powerful about sustainability. To strap on your sustainability goggles. I mean, we've got all the gloom and doom out there. You know, we're wringing our hands over climate change. We're wringing our hand over, you know, the, the state of our waterways, our, of our soils, of our just our, the health of our uh, citizens, the incoherent design of the built environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. Got the problem. What are we going to freaking do about it? And so this is why we really focused in on the economic sustainability. I mean, they're not ironclad. Nothing is. But these are powerful, powerful market forces that are at play, the big, huge pools of demand that we're just not tapping into at a, at a grand strategic scale that could really fundamentally revitalize reinvigorate and have a whole new economic renaissance for the United States that not only would change the direction of our country, it would also change global market forces towards a more sustainable global design, given the fact that we have still approximately 25% of the global economy under our belt. We have a could have a really great positive distorting effect on the global economy. And so I would, if you want me to, I can dive into the, those three big pools of demand, but I just want to put that, that the reason why we focus on that demand is because it creates the foundation for a new economy uh, for the United States. Yeah, no, that that helps. So maybe walk us through, uh, just give us a brief description of what you mean by walkable sure. communities, etc. Right. And so when we looked at, uh, you know, look at what's going on with global trend lines, both domestic and global trend lines, a couple of big bins of demand come together. And you talked about walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity. All totaled, they, uh, our calculations are there about a $1.3 trillion annual opportunity that, that's just left on the table every year because we're not focused on it. But walkable communities, this is, this is a big deal. According to the National Association of Realtors, roughly about 60% of Americans seek the attributes of smart growth, walkable communities in the next housing purchase, you know, mixed use, mixed income, service-rich, transit-oriented, walkable communities. Yeah, and that's because we're experiencing the largest demographic convergence in the marketplace for a specific type of housing product uh, that we, we haven't seen it since the end of World War II. And it's mostly because baby boomers and millennials are colliding in the marketplace. You know, baby boomers are downsizing. And, you know, they don't want to be stuck in the suburbs anymore. You know, kids take away the keys. They get shoved in a home somewhere. Uh, it's just not where they want to live. AARP is all over this about aging in place. And so baby boomers are looking to uh, be in a place where they can still be connected, still contribute. Uh, a lot of them have to because they have to continue working, which were uh, what they used to consider their retirement years, just be based on the uh, economics that are going on uh, right now. 
but they want to live in more walkable communities. And the same thing is for millennials. They don't. They left the suburbs. They don't want to go back. What seventy percent of them don't even want to own a car if they don't have to, right? So they want to live in a more connected, walkable types of communities. Whether they are in the urban core or whether we're experiencing walkability or walkable designs in the suburbs, but they seek those attributes as well. And just to put it in a historical context, that that convergence demographically, as it translates into market forces, is three times the level of demand for a housing than what we experienced in World War II when the returning GIs came home and started buying homes in the, uh, in the form of suburban sprawl. I mean, this is historic. It's huge. It's a, an economic opportunity that's just staring us right in the face. It's, it's very frustrating because right now federal policy still incentivizes legacy 20th century housing policy that st- still incentivizes drive to you qualify design. So to, to continue selling out the suburban model, it just doesn't work. We can't afford the infrastructure, the public health issues in terms of people having to drive. People are spending upwards of 40% of their household income just on transportation costs just to get to work. No wonder the middle class is getting stuck in a rut. You know, so that's just bad design. Second bin of demand about regenerative agriculture is a huge deal. I mean, it terms of economic opportunity, regenerative agriculture, right now the OECD estimates that we need to increase food production about 60 to 70 percent by the middle of the century to handle uh, growing demographics. But 100 percent of that has to be regenerative in nature. Regenerative, by that means that it is restoring our waterways, it's replenishing our soils, it's fixing our phosphorus and nitrogen cycles, that we cannot continue to do use the same what I would call industrial ag techniques that we currently do today uh, that are depletive in nature. You know, so we've got to go to this regenerative agriculture model. And the cool thing about it is that the technologies that we have developed today, we can have an incredible, incredible amount of profit just by changing the way we do our food system. So according to Rodale Institute, regenerative techniques per acre, number one, are equivalent in yields, 30% greater in times of uh, times of drought, which climate change coming our way is kind of interesting. Uh, but when you consider full externalities per acre, regenerative techniques could be as three times as profitable. And when you consider that global food prices are pretty much at an all-time high, it's a huge opportunity to really become a new farmer entrepreneur. And when you start looking at, from again, from a United States perspective, the average age of, your, of a farmer is 59 years old. Our, our farming population is aging out, number one. Number two, millennials are looking for new types of jobs. And when we talk about regenerative ag techniques, these are high-tech, high-paying long-term jobs that they can get into an incredible industry that is just an opportunity waiting to waiting to grab onto and again i wanted to point out from a national security side uh, of it it scares the hell out of me the way that we are depleting our soils and our waters i mean upwards of 50 percent of iowa's topsoil is gone 50 percent according to the university of michigan upwards of 75 percent of the breadbasket of the united states some places 75 percent of the topsoil is gone i mean we're we're mucking around with mother nature and she's going to kick us to the curb and you know she'll be fine with it i mean the world's going to be fine without us but when a food system collapses just because we haven't been good stewards of our soils and our waterways we're having problems uh, and so from national security wise uh, it, it's a big let, let me stop you there and I have a couple questions just to follow up with so sure. you had you alluded to the fact that regenerative agriculture is actually more productive even in the it sounds like in the short term when you consider all externalities can you tell me a little bit more about that I know a lot of times people will say well we need fertilizers we need these you know biogenic seeds we need all these things that maybe counter to this. I would just point to Wes Jackson and the Salinas Land Institute, the uh, Land Institute in Salinas, Kansas. You know, I mean, the technologies are there in terms of perennial uh, agriculture models. There's plenty uh, of opportunity around controlled environment ag. And when I start talking about regenerative agriculture, it's also with throwing in things like mariculture and aquaculture as well in terms of developing proteins and farming, uh, you know, fish-based proteins and things like that. In that book, we go into like a some say <laughs> exhaustive detail about all the different possibilities that are out there. And uh, it, it, it's just this huge opportunity. And I just want to point out, just to put in a little historical context, you know, everyone says, well, yeah, but the food system's so big, you know, how are you ever going to change it? And so, well, you know what, you change things by changing them. You know, if you make the shift, you know, it's particularly when you start looking at the technologies that are available, the economic opportunities available, the market forces that are available. And to say that you can't get to a scale, a national scale around your food system that will never change, quite frankly, is bullshit. But just like in World War II, 
you know, Victory Garden. It was a point of national pride. But believe it or not, the food industry was pushing against Victory Gardens until uh, Eleanor Roosevelt planted one in, in the White House. And at the end of the uh, World War II, Victory Gardens were directly responsible for producing 40% of our nation's fruits and vegetables. 40%. And those were just people growing crap in their own yard. We, we have to get over this, this, what I would call this urban legend that we just can't do big things anymore. We can do big things. It may be at a small, start at a small scale, but they, we can do big things. If we have the right kind of design, we have the right kind of investments, we have the right kind of policies in place. But most importantly, we just have the freaking grit to be Americans again. And nowhere do we see that more, I think, uh, than in the, the field of agriculture. And maybe it's because I'm a Minnesota boy. I don't know. <laughs> but I just have a soft spot for it, and uh, it, it's just this huge opportunity. Great. Okay. No, I, I appreciate that. I just um, like to take the devil's advocate just to sort of unpack it sometimes because I think uh, you know people are, have this vision of just we're all going to have uh, you know only small organic farms out in the country where it's this idyllic scene. And I think sometimes people under, don't understand the scale of agriculture and just the amount of land that's used for it, as well as how, where most of the food goes. Right? It's not necessarily that we're using it all for human consumption. A lot of it's well, used for. I mean. For other reasons, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, we look at the ethanol production. We really, really, we really need to do that. I mean, fifty percent. Oh, great. Well, Puck, welcome back. We started this last week, and then uh, we got interrupted by a rogue fire alarm. So I'm glad that your building yes. didn't burn down in the meantime. But it's good to talk to you again. Yeah. Sorry that happened. <laughs> hey, no worries. It's uh, real life. We were in the middle of talking through the three pillars in your book. I think we'd gotten through. The first one, which was walkable communities, and I expect we'll come back to that one in a bit. We were a little in the weeds on regenerative agriculture, and then I think the last one was resource productivity that we hadn't gotten into. So let's start there today and and keep going. Yeah, you know, the resource uh, productivity, again, tying back to the, the big challenge of global unsustainability, when we talk about the, you know, the burgeoning global middle class, those three billion middle class aspirants that are coming in, all systems as normal, they arrive into the global economy, their resource consumption goes up 300%. I mean, that's where you get from. Right now, the human species is using one and a half planets worth of resources to sustain itself. Well, by the middle of the century, we're looking at about four and a half planets required to, to support the human condition, even though it's just untenable. So that's why resource productivity is so uh, a revolution in resource productivity is so critical because we still want to be able to provide that middle class lifestyle. We're just going to have to do it at a resource intensity that's about 10 times less than what it currently is. And uh, the good news on that is that we have the technologies and the capacities today to be able to do that. If we could recalibrate our industrial ecosystem to that end, so what we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about renewable energy. That has got to be the primary driver for how we power our future. And the, uh, the hydrocarbon-based energy design is just—it's just untenable. Not just from a uh, climate change, which obviously is the biggest driver, uh, climate tra- change perspective, but also you just look at the condition of China. They don't have the water. To be able to use a hydrocarbon, particularly coal-based energy resources, it takes a lot of water to process the coal to be able to power their economy. And they just can't do it. They are making a fundamental decision right now between water, potable water for their citizens and having to produce, produce energy. Just doesn't work. You know the system's broken, and so there's far better, uh, far more effective, far more renewable and cleaner uh, energy options out there. When we look at it in as a system rather than series of one-offs, is it solar? Is it is it geothermal? Is it you know whatever? It's about aggregating and creating a diverse and distributed energy production and distribution system at a global scale. But it happens right here in the United States, and that's what we're focused on. But renewable energy is a big part of that. But also we're talking about advanced manufacturing uh, and advanced materials. And advanced materials is the place that I think is really exciting where that intersects with the energy uh, side of the equation when you start looking at can you do a feedstock shift at at a large scale, national scale, economic engine type of view and what we're basically talking about this is this is a beautiful thing of the hydrocarbon the hydrocarbon molecule 
you know, right now we use the hydrocarbon molecule in the most inefficient way possible. We burn it. You know, so we send all its value up the smokestack. When, you know, right now, if we just consider that 18% of hydrocarbons today that we use, we use them for making materials. Why can't we flip that equation? Why can't we say 80% of the hydrocarbons will be used uh, for materials, 20% will be used for other purposes? When we start talking about composite materials, we're talking about polymers, we start talking about what are the materials to build the future. Consider just in the United States alone, roughly about 40% of the housing stock for the United States to support our own population hasn't even been built yet for the next 25 years. Are we really going to use high carbon-based lumber, concrete, steel, the conventional materials for the future? And the answer is, should be no. And it's a huge, huge opportunity uh, for the United States and particularly, particularly northeastern Ohio, which is basically the, the polymer capital of the world with over 1,200 polymer companies there, to fundamentally revitalize an industrial base for the United States to create the materials that are, number one, they capture the carbon. Number two, they're recyclable, reusable materials. Number three, they're far superior in terms of their uh, material attributes, not only in terms of strength, endurance, but also in terms of energy efficiency. So you get this great double dip. If we take that hydrocarbon molecule and push it over into the material side rather than burning this stuff. And my dream of dreams is that, you know, you can go to the Koch brothers who, I mean, they, they could really give a rat's ass about whether, I would think, whether it's burned or whether it's used for another purpose. They just want to preserve the value of their asset. Well, here's a way, a win-win situation where you can preserve the value of the hydrocarbon asset, but you're just using it for a sustainable end. And my dream of dreams is that Greenpeace and the Koch brothers are converging on Capitol Hill to lobby for the same thing. Wouldn't that be a wonderful world? So let me cut uh, in there for just a second while I like the kumbaya sort of aspect of that. Do you have a good sense of what kind of scale is the opportunity is there? I mean, is that possible that we could switch that much of our hydrocarbons from today to just polymers or just to materials? Like, I, I just don't have any sense of that. Yeah, sure. It's, it's it's absolutely possible in terms of meeting a demand in the market. And the demand is there. I mean, just consider, again, China. I mean, so let's look at the global demand signal. China's got to put about 252 million people into the urban environment in the next 20 years or so. 252 million people. I mean, that's almost the population in the United States almost. Well, you know, two-thirds of it, whatever. But that's that's enormous. I mean, how are you going to do that? They can't do it with conventional materials. And so they're already looking at how there are other, other ways to be able to meet those housing needs. India is the same thing. Uh, Africa, same thing. So the market demand is there for the material. I mean, they're going to use something to build the homes and market materials. There. It's just a matter of can you re-wicker the industrial base to make it happen? And I'd say, yeah, you can. I mean, if we can fundamentally transform our national industrial base in World War II in a matter of about, you know, you know, Bill Newton started in about 1940, and we were up and running right after Pearl Harbor. I mean, that's pretty impressive. We can do that again. And the cool thing is, is that, you know, well, it's not the cool thing. I mean, it's maybe it's an unfortunate thing. Uh, we already have the technologies that are pulling the, the hydrocarbons out of the ground. And this is something that's going to be really problematic from an environmental community standpoint is, you know, the answer that is that the hydrocarbons have to stay in the ground. Well, in a perfect world, yeah, I suppose that would be, but that's not our reality. And I'm a Marine at heart, and you're going to say, okay, what's the, <laughs> what's our reality? How do we get to where we need to, to get to? And the fact of the matter is that there is way too much momentum to get that stuff out of the ground. So if you can accept that, that reality, instead of trying to fight that reality, and how can you, I mean, it's kind of like Chinese strategy and strategic philosophy. It's like, okay, how do I create the right kind of potential out of a situation, whether that situation is trending the way I want to or not? Right now, it's not trending in the direction I want, so how do I shift the trend line in a direction I want? To me, that's the approach. So can we do it? Well, yeah, we can do anything. We just have to have the political will and the, the industrial grit to make it happen. But we already have the system in place to get the core feedstock out of the ground. I mean, we already have the industrial base and the technologies to do it. It's just a matter of scaling at this point and deploying capital. To me, the market demand that already exists. So can we do it? Yeah, well, it yeah. makes sense. And I, I've heard other people talk about you know not just using 
for materials, but the idea that there are some industrial processes where you really do need hydrocarbons just because of the energy density. And, you know, we're burning natural gas to heat our homes when you could use a heat pump or something like that. I mean, simplistically speaking, certain industrial processes, you need that heat at that level. Using electricity to do that is not very efficient. So if we're burning it today, right. we, don't, we don't have it for the future. So there's, there's a lot of at play there, I suppose, with the keep it in the ground. There's many reasons to do that. It's not just the carbon, but it's also, we're going to need it in the future, <laughs> you know, but I, yeah. I take your point. There is a lot of uh, momentum, but if we can figure out a way to harness that in a direction that's promotes our economy, then you're much more likely to have success at that than everybody just agreeing well, not to do something bad in, you know, quote unquote bad. Well, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, I don't know if you excessively, uh, Machiavellian about it. It's just that we're running out of time. And having the argument when you don't have any leverage, it's just, to me, it doesn't make any sense. So f can you figure out the win-win situation? Because right now we've got a massive win-lose situation going on. And I don't see that needle moving in any real appreciable way, at least in the United States. I mean, it's interesting what's going on in Paris right now, you know, noticeably absent as formerly the United States. But all that aside, you know, we're running out of time. And so we better start coming up with some real pragmatic solutions to get us to where we need to be in terms of uh, uh, climate change real quick. And, you know, to me, the, the economic argument is the best case of doing well, it. So let's move into that because you get into that in your book a little bit. I liked your formula of demand plus capital minus stranded assets equals the new grand strategy. So yeah. talk, talk to me a little bit more about that. I mean, you go into the book also, uh, as you alluded to a second ago, just the fact that we've done this transition a couple of times, you know, before World War II, yeah. after World War II, during the Cold War. Um, how does this work for the 21st century? Yeah, yeah. And I just want to make it clear, when we looked at that formula of demand plus capital minus stranded assets, it's the economic foundation of a new grand strategy. Remember, grand strategy is going to be the entire system, the, the entire show in terms of foreign policy, domestic policy converging and grading the governing institutions to, so we could take on whatever the big challenge is of the day. But this is the, this formula is the thing that forms the core uh, of a new economic foundation for a grand strategy. But so just to get back at it, you know, the history of it. And this is where, you know, you got to think big to do big. I guess uh, let me go off on the, uh, just for a second, is I've had it up to, well, you can't see me, but I'm pointing my head, my hand pretty high on my head. Uh, I've had it up to here with this horse shit about, uh, you know, it'll never happen. It can't possibly happen. Well, we have done this in our past in terms of doing a grand strategy. It's always been based on our economy. It's always stood on our economy. So in World War II, this demand plus capital minus stranded assets thing. I mean, let's look at the, you know, where we were in World War II. You know, 1940, nobody even wanted to even think about the war you know, that was coming. You know, not even the military was really prepared for it. Politicians definitely weren't. The business community was so against the New Deal and Roosevelt's policies. You know, we just couldn't get it going. So... Roosevelt pointed to a couple of key people, Bill Newton, number one, who was the CEO of General Motors, and then Bernard Baruch, who was a, a finance guy out of, out of Manhattan, said, we got to figure this thing out. And so they did. They, uh, Roosevelt uh, turned to the business leadership to figure out how we are going to get the industrial base to get this country ready for a war. And so that's really where you see this first time with this, this big idea of demand plus capital minus stranded assets. And so this business leadership recognized that getting the country ready for the war, business wasn't going to do it just out of their good graces, you know, that there had to be a business logic to it. And so they saw that there was this big, huge demand signal for war materials. You know, earlier it's 1940, but they also recognized that, you know, whenever the United States entered this war, that we were going to need this, that, that industrial base to crank out our own stuff. So, uh, but there was this huge demand for, for war material. Mostly coming from Great Britain, but also, you know, certain to extent other European allies at the time. But they needed to have a mechanism in order to get the capital flowing to it. And it couldn't just be, they weren't going to be self-financed. They had to figure out a way to get the capital there. It was mostly going to be around government funding. So that's when they started thinking about a cost plus contract. You know, it had to be on commercial terms. And so how to get the money flowing to business to get the, uh, the industrial base moving and start creating the war materials that were required. So they looked at the cost plus contract and that led to lend lease. 
you know, that was the brilliant thing about, you know, we're going to be able to crank this stuff out, we'll pay for it on a cost plus contract, get the stuff to where it needed to go, and uh, be able to take on, at the time, obviously Nazi Germany and then uh, Japan was starting to bubble up too. And the interesting thing, when you start looking at that, there's this demand signal for war material, then we had a way to get the capital going in the form of Lend-Lease. It answered a big problem that the United States had, is that we had these big, huge stranded assets, mostly in the form of idle labor and uh, underproducing factories. And all of a sudden, we kicked into gear those uh, stranded assets. We solved those stranded assets by directing towards new demand signal and a new way of pushing capital towards that demand. It solved a big problem in terms of our stranded assets. Big deal. And so by going from having probably one of the weakest militaries, 458,000-man military going into World War II, we came out with a big, huge juggernaut of roughly 20 million folks in uniform. And by the end of the war, 70% of all the war material that the Allies used to fight the war, 70% of it came out of an American factory. It was a huge success story, you know, a huge, I mean, it was that formula, it works, right? And so when you start looking at, okay, well, when did we do it again? We did it again in, you know, at the end of the Cold War. And starting in 19, this is the difference between now uh, and then. We had public officials that really thought in strategic terms. So as early as 1943, they said, hey, the war's going a little bit better. You know, we haven't even landed on the shores of Normandy yet, but, you know, Guadalcanal happened. That was a turning point. Stalingrad happened. That was a turning point. In 1943, we had the public officials that had the pressures to say, okay, we have got to start re-engineering our economy for a peacetime economy. You know, and they started as early as 1943 as planning on how that transition was going to occur. All right. And so by the time Cold War uh, or by the end of World War II and the Cold War started kicking in, they already had the ideas of, again, tapping into that formula, demand plus capital minus stranded assets. And so the demand signal that we saw was that after years of austerity coming through the Depression and then into World War II, it was time to kind of pay back the American citizen. And so we really started crafting out. At the time, it probably made sense, and now we've got to deal with it now. But we started looking at the, the suburban dream, you know, suburban sprawl. Can everyone get a home? We had all these returning GIs. You know, we had the GI Bill. We're setting them up for success. Can we get them into a home and start living the American dream? And, yeah, they had purposeful policies to make that happen. You know, and it also kind of fit into uh, the the security reality of the day when we started looking at uh, uh, distributing out of out of the urban core because of uh, this newfound massive weapons of destruction in the form of atomic weapons. So there was actually overt policy coming out of the White House to actually move people out into the suburban fringe, right? And so, but everyone can get a house. Yeah, that's a suburban dream. And then they had, you know, the other part of that demand signal, not only for housing, was around the consumer goods to fill those houses, right? And then the third big bin of that demand for uh, post-World War II going into the Cold War was reconstruction materials for Europe and Japan, recognizing that our biggest enemies, particularly Germany and Japan, we needed to rebuild them and make them our allies and reshift it. We had the capacity to think in those terms. Instead of punishing them, we were going to get them back on their feet because we recognized that the next challenge, we already focused on the Cold War, Soviet Union, and this long-term twilight struggle, as it's called, uh, political and economic systems against the Soviet Union. You know, and that was the, you know, the, the beauty of George Kennan's concept of containment. Yeah, we contain them militarily, but we would focus on building up our economy and leveraging our, our political system to outlast the Soviets and let the Soviet Union collapse based on its own internal contradictions. It was huge. And so we had these big demand signals post-World War II, Cold War, you know, the suburban dream, consumer goods to fill those houses, and then the reconstruction materials. And then so we, in order to fuel that, we leveraged the fact that our economy was booming out of World War II. It was huge capacity. And so we started pushing federal investment and subsidies into things like infrastructure. This is where Eisenhower came in. He clearly recognized we needed to invest in our infrastructure and that we were going to subsidize certain things, whether that was ranging from uh, industrial outputs to uh, agriculture, et cetera. But we were going to make those types of investments. And in the process of doing that, we were going to be able to absorb the veterans coming home from World War II and be able to transition our war industries from making tanks to making cars again to making washers and dryers to be able to make the materials to rebuild uh, Germany. It was a brilliant, brilliant design. And it worked. The problem is, is after the, you know, the hammer and sickle was lowered over the Soviet Union in 1991, we never recalibrated. We didn't even think about how to recalibrate. We just thought, well, we're the system's just going to keep working ad infinitum. And we really needed to recalibrate and particularly look at this formula of demand plus capital minus stranded assets to create a new 
grand strategic uh, foundation for the 21st century. And we just have never done it. And that was kind of the gist of why we even wrote the book. So hope that wasn't no, too no, gross, it's, but, it's it's fascinating yeah. to kind of see, and, and there's a little bit of irony there that that the core of all of what you just described, which I think is a great example of how America has recalibrated itself and and worked within a previous grand strategy, but at the core of it was was fossil fuels and many of the things that we're we're facing right now, which are causing some of our our new new challenges that we have to face. So, you know, so well, how, so kind of take me now, looking forward. Which of those have become our stranded assets? I mean, you've, you've alluded to some, like our suburban sprawl and some of the other things that were kind of driving our growth in the past. Yeah, I mean, now, how does the formula look today? Well, we already know the big demand signals are around walkable communities, regenerative ag, and resource productivity. And again, you can only see those if you put in your you know, sustainability goggles and not look at how do we keep this old economy alive, which is what we're doing now. The only way to keep the old system alive is to feed, you know, that's debt-ridden is to feed it more debt. I mean, that's a stupid design. But we know we have these big demand signals, walkable communities, regenerative ag, resource productivity, just sitting there. We know we have all sorts of excess liquidity in the form of whether it's corporate cash, it's hedge funds, massive amounts of wealth that's being transferred from baby boomers to, you know, Gen Xers and, and, and so on. Huge amounts of, of capital that's just sitting there looking for a home for a reasonable return. But to your point, so what are the but what are the big stranded assets that we got to get away from? Well, number one are the hydrocarbons. That's again why we just talked about you know being able to do this feedstock shift. The hydrocarbon right now by burning it by its main purpose just being you know using it as energy, which is hyper inefficient. Particularly how our centralized energy production and distribution system is so ineffective, so inefficient, and just so deleterious for a lot of reasons. That is a big vexing problem. So how do you solve for that? You solve it because you push hydrocarbons towards the demand signal, which again is, can you do that feedstock shift? Use it for a different purpose. It can still have value. Uh, it can have enhanced value if you push it towards where the actual demand is. The second thing is around labor. This whole idea that we're going to get these old manufacturing jobs, we're going to save the coal industry. Well, that's just totally disregarding the reality that renewable energy sector is creating far more enduring jobs than what the coal industry did you know and you know maybe hillary clinton should have said it the way she said it but she was right you know i'm not going to bring back coal jobs it's stupid you know we don't need more coal jobs there aren't many coal jobs more coal jobs have been lost from automation than from you know policies that are not are anti-coal so we have to figure out how do we start investing in education and training for new types of manufacturing jobs, which are actually clean jobs. They're in the urban core kind of jobs where people want to live. These are the things that we need to do. And then lastly, our infrastructure. Are we really going to keep doubling down on a massive highway system and deny the fact that you know most millennials aren't looking to own a car in the future? Are we really going to start doubling, you know, seeing we're going to pay for it by more vehicle miles travel when we know that as new technologies emerge, particularly automated vehicles, electric vehicles, rail systems, vehicle mile travels are going to go down. Basic infrastructure of bridges, the basic infrastructure of how we move water, how we move energy, all those things have to be redesigned to match to our 21st century reality. Those are all stranded assets. But what's great right now is that we have the demand signal that will address uh, addresses those things, walkable communities, regenerative ag, resource productivity. We have the capital to start engaging those demand signals. And by engaging those demand signals, we can address those, those stranded assets by moving the hydrocarbons into the material side. By taking a new type of labor, uh, instead of trying to preserve an old uh, labor construct you know, and doing old jobs, move into uh, new jobs, and particularly in the agriculture sector. It's a, it's a burgeoning, burgeoning place, uh, market that can generate all sorts of new types of jobs for millennials. It's high tech. It would be high paying. Uh, it would be exciting type of work. Love it. You know? And then on the infrastructure side, it's just a matter of transitioning to a new uh, idea of what infrastructure means. And this goes to the idea away from doing big centralized stuff, but to doing stuff like district infrastructure, energy, water. Mobility, both, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, connectivity, both in terms of, you know, last mile mobility to digital types of uh, connectivity. You know, it's just exciting stuff. It's all there. It's ready to go. And so uh, we have the opportunity to, to, to use that formula uh, right now if we can get the right kinds of policies 
in place, number one, which would be nice. But we don't have to wait on Washington to do it because the private sector, if they can just see these opportunities and start constructing or, or figuring out how to be able to push capital towards these ends and start changing the business models of how we currently do business, I mean, the, the opportunity is limitless right now. It's great. And right now we're looking at $1.3 trillion a year that's just sitting on the table waiting to be grabbed by some, you know, by uh, any number of uh, any number of folks. Excellent. Hope that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a small business owner. I'm uh, definitely left of center, but believe in the power of entrepreneurship and believe in the power of, uh, you know, people wanting to do better for themselves. So that does make a lot of sense yeah. to me. I mean, you want to motivate people to build a better future for themselves, not just make things less bad. And I think that's been a pretty common theme in this podcast. Um, so yeah. I want to, I want to take you on a, a, a side trip back and I know you've, you've corrected me probably t- at least two or three times already, but I'm pulling you back there anyway. Um, and that the grand strategy is not a military strategy. It is a strategy for the entire right. U S but I want to take you back just to the military. Cause I know you've had a lot of experience in the military and can you just give us kind of an overview of how is the military thinking about sustainability today? Because I know you're not the first person I've heard this from. I've had many conversations, and it's always surprised me on on, on the depth to which the military thinks about sustainability uh, for reasons that people may not uh, at first blush understand. Well, yeah, I mean uh, – I'm trying to say this. Uh, I guess I'll just be really blunt. I always say, well, you know, the, the, the military doesn't look at things in terms of sustainability, in terms of this is their, their mission. It's not. You're not going to find a military guy that says it. You're not going to hear me say that. That's not our mission. We do recognize and recognize for a long time. It's been a core planning factor is what are going to be the effects of climate change uh, on the security environment? A lot of the work, particularly from the Marine Corps side, but I mean, just the military in general, a lot of the flashpoints that we're going to see uh, around the world happen in the urban littorals, you know, right there along the coastlines. And that, you know, those obviously the, the that urban environment is going to feel the, the greatest effects of, of sea level rise, et cetera. But we also look at uh, places, particularly like in Africa, Central Asia and stuff, the effects of climate change on the ability to produce food, access to water, the issue of security environment. But in terms of the actual systems and stuff, you know, whether, you know, the military wants to use renewable uh, energy, you know, we can get into the fact that, you know, just from an operational standpoint, it's just about how can we be most efficient and most effective so that we can be the most lethal force. Anywhere, you know, you can cut down your logistics tail is something we want to do. Anything that allows you to be quicker, more agile, so that you can be more lethal is something we want to do, you know. Uh, and, I mean, it's often quoted stat, you know, from the Afghanistan experiences. You know, we were losing roughly about one troop for every 24 convoys, and those convoys are running 24 hours a day, you know, so just to haul wow. fuel. You know, and it's uh, you know that's a that's a pretty big toll for your logistics uh, uh, your logistics tail. It's a good motivation for energy efficiency, I suppose, right? Well, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and I mean the, you know, the logistics, you know, you know, there's a lot of things you know you have to consider logistically, but the big three uh, in the military is you know you got to haul bulk fuel, you got to haul bulk munitions, and you got to haul bulk water. You know, if you can't get them, you know, sourced locally, so it makes a lot of sense to start sourcing things locally. You know, uh, and energy is one of those things. It's a freebie, you know. So that, and I got to tell you, I got to tell you one little freaking story. When I was in the Pentagon, you know, some smart ass staffer was telling me, you know, you guys are Department of Defense, you're the Department of Energy. Why you, you know? I said, well, you know what? Why don't you sit behind one of the freaking wheels in one of those fuel trucks and just drive, just do one trip and see how that feels? <laughs> or better yet, why don't you strap on a rucksack and have to hump the batteries up a mountain? You know, ch- you know, chasing after uh, uh, you know the Taliban in the Hindu Kush. One trip up that mountain, you're going to realize that humping batteries all over the place isn't any fun. So you know, you know, get over the the emotion of it and just recognize that the military is doing it because of again, want to be more lethal on the operational side. In a more strategic sense, just think about the number, amount of assets, particularly on the Navy, that they have to uh, deploy just to preserve the oil pipeline. You know, to get back to the United States. Now it's just shifted now because we're, we're producing more uh, from inside the, uh, you know, from the United States. So it's been reduced a bit, but it's still a huge security c- 
concern, and it, re- it requires a lot of assets. And I just want to also point out the fact that you know nothing pisses me off more than somebody's well, we're just going to be energy independent, and everything's going to be better. You know, well, number one, you know, that way we don't have to worry about the Middle East, and we can just ignore it. Well, there's no ignoring anything. I mean, it's a global system. Globalization's real. Everything is connected systemically. So that's a bullshit argument. Number one. Number two is, are you really energy independent when you're still dependent on fossil fuels? Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just a ridiculous argument. It is a failing system, you know, and uh, a bad system that has bad design will create bad results. And so if you could start looking at the, from, from that standpoint, that a car dependent culture What's the point of security? Security is supposed to keep Americans safe, to keep them alive, keep them prosperous, keep them, you know, a, a vibrant society. Well, right now, your average American stands a one in twenty million chance of getting killed in, in a terrorist-related event. Look at the resources we're expending to to that end, right? Preventing that stuff. I mean, like building a wall now. I mean, give me a break. But yeah, one in five Americans, or your average American stands a one in five chance of dying from an obesity-related cause. Right. You know. Yeah. And. You know, and so when we start looking at our car-dependent culture that is dependent on a hydrocarbon-based fuels, where people are, you know, eating like one-third of their meals in their car, you know, they're losing time with their family, they basically lose two weeks, which is a family vacation because they're sitting in their cars, you know, one-third of our nation is clinically obese, you know? I mean, these are real, vexing national security uh, issues. They're not national defense issues, but they're national security issues. And they're all, you know, they're all kind of manifested around dependency on hydrocarbon-based fuels. Um, no, I appreciate that uh, perspective in it. Like you said, it's um, maybe our, our, our big threats these days have changed shape quite a bit since World War II. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let me oh, go ahead. Well, no, I just also want to underscore the idea that, you know, our military, our folks are still citizens, you know. We do think about these things, but I just want to like just footstomp the fact that you know, from the military's perspective, again, it is about efficiency, and that, as it translates into lethality. But I also just want to make one more point, just because it, I just think it needs to be said: we've got to, as a nation, stop turning to the military to check and see what's okay for us to grab onto as a society and a culture. The military says it's climate change. You know, climate change is real. Okay, climate change is real. Look at the military that says it, right? Or you know, the military said, you know, in my case, working, uh, you know, doing this grand strategy work. Look, sustainability. Military says that it's good. Therefore, it's good. Everyone should embrace it. We got to stop doing that. You know, and that scares me the hell out of me right now. Is that for this country? You know, with our current administration, that everyone takes a big sigh of relief because we've got some of the, you know these phenomenal people that I really respect, former generals and current generals, they're sitting in these key positions hoping that, okay, they can keep a lid on anything bad happening. That is not what this government's about. It's not what this nation's about. We've got to be very careful about this thing. Okay, the military is going to keep them because there's a lot of countries out there that that is how they keep a lid on thing, bad things happening. That's how Pakistan operates. We don't want to be Pakistan. We're the United States. We need to have our citizen civilian leadership in the forefront, making the right decisions and having the being able to make decisions based on the logic, being able to make the decisions based on moral courage, on the economic logic of it. But quit using the military as the way to say, hey, see, even if the, mil- the military says it's okay, therefore it's okay. That's not our role. You know, and I just, it's the role of a citizen to recognize what's best for their society. And have the gumption, the grit, the will to be able to make the case on their own and take a leadership role in that and not turn to the military to hope that the military will lead in the direction this country's got to go. Well, I appreciate that. And this leads well into my next question. You have a decorated military career in your rearview mirror. And I think you've laid out a plan for transforming our entire economy. So how are you actually doing that now that you're a civilian again? You know, spent a time in the think tank, you know, just to start with uh, Patrick Doherty and just working on, okay, you know, we wrote the narrative, which was clearly non-prescriptive because sitting in the Pentagon, you don't want the military prescribing what the grand strategy of the nation ought to be. We, so we just wanted the idea out there. But once I retired in 2011, became a senior fellow at what was then New America Foundation, 
now just New America, to be able to flesh out the ideas, particularly around the economics of it. Then ended up going to uh, the business school at Case Western Reserve University, whether it's the School of Management at the Fowler Center, to be able to really go deeper on not only the business models that were required and how business could take the lead in the absence of leadership from Washington, how the business community could take a lead in making this large grand strategic transformation, but also take some of those ideas and put them in play at a regional, I would say at a municipal and a regional scale. So we played with that. And then finally, we just said, you know what, instead of standing around generating these ideas, hoping somebody would do something with it, we said, you know, you got to go where the meat meets the metal. So we, me and Patrick, jumped out of Case Western in February of this year and launched Long Haul Capital Group with a specific mission of financing walkable communities. Because we see walkable communities as being the most catalytic demand signal that could have systemic impact across what we call an entire new industrial ecosystem, but specifically to our grand strategic thesis of what's important. And so uh, we launched Long Haul Capital Group that would not only figure out how we could get folks into more walkable communities, you know, where 60% of Americans want to be in a more walkable community, but only 1% of the urban uh, metropolitan landmass can be considered walkable. Therefore, there's a price premium and folks just can't afford to get into them, particularly with existing policy that incentivizes drive to qualify. So we're, we're figuring out a new type of mortgage product to help folks get in there and be able to afford their living in a walkable community. And also, how do we create walkable communities with federal dollars being reduced in investments in the key infrastructure that we need, things like intracity rail, you know, light rail systems and streetcar systems. We are figuring out how to get capital in to build out those kind of systems because those systems create the new walkable places around the transit stops. And they connect walkable places together so that people can get to their jobs and not be dependent on a car. And so it's a systemic in nature. Not only are we going to help people get into the communities, we're going to help invest in the systems that create those communities to meet that demand. So that's what we're doing right now. So putting, trying to put our money where our mouth is, and that's what we're doing. Excellent. Well, I like that. Well, so coming back to um, where my work comes into play, and I guess the whole purpose of this podcast is really focused on uh, campuses, primarily uh, higher education campuses, but also corporate campuses. Can you help bring back what we've been talking about today? I mean, I have the luxury of talking about whatever I want. This has been really fascinating. <laughs> but just to try to bring it back home to uh, the theme of the podcast, what and I met you originally at a higher edu- education institution, so I, I assume you have some thoughts. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate the uh, the level of leadership that university and college uh, presidents and their administrations are showing in the you know in the face of you know, the United States pulling out of Paris, you know, and with large percentage of academic institutions that have committed to certain uh, you know climate goals, uh, but then also participating in you know we're still in it campaign. So that kind of leadership is just great. But I will also say that on the uh, my experience <laughs> with academic institutions, once you get into the actual operational side, like the facility side, it's like, okay, the percentage of those that have made a commitment, what have you really committed to in terms of action? Because it's going to be a difficult thing. Can you transition to higher efficiency and put your money where your mouth is, higher efficiency in energy systems. You know, it's creating new types of financial models. You know, a lot of folks are worried about their balance sheet. Okay, well, figure it out. You know, I got that. Types of, you know, goals that we set, whether it's around, you know, the food service systems. You know, a lot of universities have got aggressive goals. They say, hey, we're going to use 20, 20%, 25% sustainable local food. Why isn't it 100%? Right. You know, why don't you go 100%? Why don't you just make that happen? Instead of like doing one-off projects, research projects, why don't you systemically look across your entire campus and how are you going to converge all the different stuff that you got going on in your campus towards a large purpose-driven mission? You know, you don't want to stifle creativity or anything, but you also want to make a difference. And I mean, I would just challenge for you know, just to uh, like think strategically. And strategically, you have to think of what is my mission, what is my purpose, and under that purpose, how do I can like really take my the assets that I have and put them to towards that end. And it's just uh, very frustrating to me because these are anchor institutions that need to take a leadership role. And so, just to kind of recap that, it's close your say do gap. You're going to make a commitment. We better get on it right now. You know, in, in terms of the di- types of systems you use just to operate your institution. Second thing is, what you're currently doing can it be more effective? 
uh, in terms of integrating all the capacities that you have, you know, intellectual, uh, financial, uh, research and development towards some big thing, a big idea, a couple big ideas, and not just be so just doing a bunch of freaking one-offs. The world doesn't need more widgets. The world needs strategic impact. And really put your money where your mouth is. Time's running out. You know, and uh, the the you know the ivory towers of academia, you can't hide in that tower anymore and think that somebody else is going to do it. I would say it's time for an activist academic community, and not about. Uh, I got to be careful what I say because I get fired up about <laughs> it. But it, 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 you know, it's about doing real things and not getting. At the end of the day, you got to get on with the doing, and it might feel good to stomp your feet and yell and scream about what you're against. But eventually, you got to be for something, and can you really, as an institution, commit your resources towards making something happen? I like that as a place to end. I did want to give you a chance to say if there's a way for people to get in touch with you, sort of the, the pro forma of the end of a podcast. Oh, sure. I mean, anybody can get a hold of me at Mickleby, just M Y K L E B Y, at fullcirclestrat.com. And if you want to learn more about the new grand strategy of our book, we've got a website. It's just www.thenewgrandstrategy.com. Excellent. And I, I will include links to your contact info and a link to the book in the podcast notes for sure. Sure. Yeah. Puck, any closing thoughts before we uh, let you go? Uh, just a closing thought. We're doing a lot of hand-wringing right now. And I got it. I mean, I do, I guess, my fair share of hand-wringing too. But we can do this, whatever this is, define this on however you want to define it. But we can do this. I mean, we are the land of opportunity. I firmly believe that. And uh, we just have to have the will, the grit, and look in the mirror and say, yeah, this is, this is my fight. So step in the ring and punch above your weight. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Don't try to worry about the things you can't control. Focus on the things that you can control in your own life. And I'm telling you, we will turn the dial. Will, and it's going to turn in a really good direction. That's very, all. very, very good. Well, I'm glad we made it through fire alarm and all, but uh, thanks again for being yeah. on the show. <laughs> thanks for the patience. I apologize for all that. That's it for this episode. As always, you'll find show notes on the website at campusenergypodcast.com. Please keep those show ideas coming and perhaps take a moment to write a review on iTunes to help us get the word out about the show. Thanks for listening. Thank you.